you want to get your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 18, that's where we'll be studying from. And I will remind you a little bit of the scripture reading, so if you are open at Psalm 1, you can leave it open there, but uh, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. It's good to be with you this morning and to be studying God's Word together and, and spending time together. Um, as we've been studying through the book of Acts, we're going to continue to study uh, the book of Acts this morning. And uh, we're going we're gonna to continue where we left off in our study of Paul's missionary journeys. He's just finished the second journey and he's about to start on the third. But there's a few stories in here that, that we're going to talk about in depth as we... As we uh, look at the beginning of this journey. It's not really like the others where there's a detailed itinerary of Paul's travels and the events that unfold, but it kind of starts out in the, in the city of Ephesus. And so uh, today and uh, next Sunday, we're going to be uh, talking about Paul's time in Ephesus and learning about what, what all went on there. If, uh, if you've been a Bible student for very long, um, do you feel like you know enough about the Bible are you pretty content with your knowledge of the Bible? Uh, and would you say that you're good, uh, maybe, as far as uh, what you know? Well, Psalm 1 was interesting. As, we read, as Tommy read through that, it talked about uh, the blessing of those who do not uh, follow after the ways of the wicked. They do not listen to their counsel, but the blessing of those who delight in the law of God. And those who meditate on the law of God, the word of God, day and night, that that is the one who is truly blessed. And that picture is not a picture of someone who is, you know, content with what they know, but it's a picture of someone who is diligent in continuing to think about, to study uh, God's word. And, and it's not something that's tedious. It's not something that uh, is, is laborious and, and something that gets on their nerves, but it's something that they delight in. Like we delight in ice cream or, or, or some kind of tasty, sweet treat after a meal. Now, that's what the word is supposed to be to us. It's supposed to be something that is delightful and enjoyable for all of us and something that we just meditate on. We just spend time thinking about and considering the wonder of the word that we study and we, 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 we're contemplating the meaning of all of these things. As you study uh, the Bible, is that how you feel about the Bible? Or like I said at the beginning, are you feeling as though you know enough of the Bible? You're content with your knowledge and your understanding and, and you have no real desire or longing to dive into God's word and to study it uh, at any great length. Well, in that psalm, he gives us a picture. And the picture is of a tree. And it says the one who uh, delights in the word and the one who is meditating on it day and night is like a tree that is planted by the waters. That's a picture for us all to see that the word gives us nourishment. It gives us uh, liveliness and, and well-being as we are continually taking it in like a tree is continually taking in water. And he compares the, the tree that's alive, that's by the water, to chaff. Chaff is the dried up part of the wheat that is thrown away and, and it, it just flies off into the wind. It, it's not grounded and it, it doesn't live. It's dead. And he says those who are wicked are more like the chaff. And the contrast is those who are studying and delighting in the Word of God and meditating on it, they are thriving, they are living and those who have just forsaken the word and choose instead to follow wise counsel and, 
and to engorge themselves with ideas and, and uh, doctrines of the world are like flying chaff. They're just dead, floating in the air. So as we, as we consider that psalm, and now we come into Acts, we're going to notice today two different stories that relate to the righteous, the tree. Two stories that relate to the tree, where someone is willing to listen to God's word continually, and they're willing to take it in and to grow from it. And that's, that's our goal. Next week, we're going to talk about people who aren't that way, more like the chaff, and we'll, we'll study about them next week. But this week, we get uh, a really good, a beautiful picture. And the first story we're going to learn about uh, is the story of Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos. Uh, as we study this, we'll notice that uh, Paul has gone through Ephesus on his way back at the end of the second missionary journey. He's dropped off Priscilla and Aquila there to teach them, and he's left hoping to come back, and we'll see him come back in just a little bit. But he left Aquila and Priscilla there, who he had taught in Corinth for a year and a half, and they were there in Ephesus, and they were teaching and helping the people there. And let's read what happened. Uh, chapter 18, verse 24 It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, <clears throat> the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now notice in this story the picture that we're, we're given of Apollos. Apollos is a man who is extremely eloquent, a man who is raised in Alexandria, a, a part of Egypt that was very diverse in its culture. Alexandria, named after Alexander the Great, right? Um, he, he traveled down into Egypt and conquered there, and they named this city after him. And this would have been a place that would have been uh, very diverse in its culture. It would have had Greek, it would have had Roman, it would have had Egyptian, it would have had Jews, Jewish population as well. And apparently Aquila is a part of that Jewish population. And he is a very eloquent man. He is very educated and knowledgeable about how to speak and how to act in certain situations. But it also tells us he is full of understanding. And it tells us that he was able to teach accurately the things concerning Jesus. So Apollos is not just a Jew who's eloquent, but he's a Jew who has been taught the truth about Jesus and is believing it. And he comes up into the synagogue of those in Ephesus and he starts to teach them about Jesus accurately. And so here's, here's another uh, servant of God, another missionary, so to speak, like Paul, who has now traveled up into this region and is now here evangelizing and teaching people about Jesus. But there's some things that he's saying that aren't quite right. And Aquila and Priscilla hear him 
And so what they decide to do is they decide to rebuke him in front of everybody and call him out to be a false teacher. That's not what it says, is it? No. It doesn't say that they rebuked him in front of everybody. It's not, it doesn't say that they embarrassed him or uh, spoke harshly to him as though he was a false teacher. But it says that they took him aside and they taught the way of God to him more accurately. Because he had only, he had, he had only understood the teachings of the baptism of John. And so they're going to explain to, to Apollos what Jesus' baptism is compared to John's baptism to help him understand and connect the dots between the differences between these two different baptisms. And notice, <clears throat> doesn't say that Apollos argued with him or that he got his feelings hurt, though maybe he did a little bit at first and he'd been teaching this whole time and it wasn't right, so there's a struggle to overcome that maybe. But it doesn't tell us that he struggled with that. Instead, it seems as though he just understood because he had studied the scriptures, the things that Aquila and Priscilla brought before him lined up perfectly with what he had understood the scriptures to be talking about. And he understood the spirit and, and the picture of the baptism of Jesus. And so he accepts this as the truth. And then he goes on teaching the truth after being corrected by Aquila and Priscilla. And all the brethren give him an encouragement to go and teach also in the region of Achaia in Corinth, where Paul had left earlier. And he goes there and he refutes the Jews because he's, he's eloquent and he's knowledgeable. But what a beautiful story this is of a man who is willing to listen to the truth. A man who is not content with what he knows and he doesn't just sit there thinking, well, I've already hammered out the baptism stuff. I don't need to hear more about baptism. I don't need to hear more about uh, what I need to do. I've been teaching. I, I know the right things. I've been, I've been a teacher. Did you not hear how eloquently I put that argument about how Jesus is, is our Savior? Did you not hear how, how professionally I was able to speak all of these things? Who are you to speak to me in such a way? No. He listened. He had humility. He was willing to relearn things because he's not chaff that's dead, but he's a tree that's planted by the waters. He's able to come to a, a greater understanding of what the truth is. He's open to whatever the truth is, and he has a desire to, to believe and to teach the things that are true that's stronger than his desire to look as though he knows everything. That's a wonderful Wonderful thing that we see in this story. Well, whenever you continue, you'll, you'll learn that there's a second story that is very similar to the first. And in this case, it's a story about 12 disciples, in this case, 12 men. And let's start in verse 1 of chapter 19. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they 
were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men and all. This is a very fascinating story, especially after just learning that Apollos had misunderstood the baptism of John and was teaching about uh, baptism in line with the baptism of John. Apparently that was just missing from the understanding of certain people in the region of Ephesus. Maybe Apollos had previously taught those people and not explained to them the baptism of Jesus, instead explained to them the baptism of John. And, and we don't know if uh, they rebaptized Apollos, but here we see these men are rebaptized. They, they, they asked, Paul asked them, Have you received, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they don't know what he's talking about. Like, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he says, well, then what were you baptized into? That's interesting progression. Okay. First of all, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Hadn't heard there is one. Into what then were you baptized? Notice the progression uh, in this text. They didn't understand the Holy Spirit at all. And Paul says, well, that's, that's the baseline of the Jesus baptism is the Holy Spirit. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You go back and you look at the beginning of the gospel accounts and you read the words of John the Baptist. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one coming after me is mightier than I, than I whose sandal I am, I'm unfit to unstrap. And he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We go uh, earlier in the book of Acts and we see uh, the baptism that was talked about on the day of Pentecost includes uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit being given. And so there is this sense in which whenever there is baptism that is happening, that's Jesus' baptism, there is something to do with the Holy Spirit in that baptism. But whenever there is baptism that is like John's baptism, the Holy Spirit wasn't even mentioned in that. It was simply a baptism of repentance with water, and it even says in the early Gospels, for the forgiveness of sins. So interesting to see that there's this distinguishment that's being made between these two baptisms, the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. And as we, we think about this a little bit, we notice these disciples needed to relearn baptism, and they needed to learn from the beginning about the Holy Spirit and what that means. Some of you may be saying, well, that sounds good. Let's learn about that. Because <laughs> I'm not 100% sure. Like this distinguishment between these two things, like what is that about? Why is he saying there's a difference between uh, baptisms as though there's multiple different kinds of baptisms? And, and what is it that, it that these people are being rebaptized? How many times do we need to be dunked in the water, right? I mean, is it not good enough that we've been bumped, dunked in the water one time? Is that not enough? What's the difference between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism? Is it the water? Did the disciples uh, have to baptize in a different way with water? Was it more of a sprinkling than a, an immersion? No, there was immersion. Baptisms, we read about in Acts, that was Jesus' baptism. So it's not the water that was the difference. Uh, it's not the location that's the difference. It's not that they all had to go to the Jordan River to be baptized for John, but after that, Jesus, you, you have to be baptized in a, a baptistry. They didn't have those probably. Um, it has nothing to do with that. So what's the difference here? What, what is 
going on that is so different about these two baptisms that now these people are being corrected. It's beautiful that they are willing to accept the correction, and that's kind of the main focus of our our lesson, but we have to take this little rabbit trail, right? Why is there a difference between their baptisms? Well, it's, it's not about any of those things, not about the waters, not about the methods, not about the location. Whenever we look at this text, we see primarily, first and foremost, it's about the authority. Look at verse 4 again. It says, and Paul, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Notice, uh, believing in Jesus in the future. And then it says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That phrase, in the name of, is under the authority of. That's what that means. Like whenever we say, stop in the name of the law, it's in the, under the authority of the law. So there was a baptism of John's that was looking forward to the Messiah coming and everybody saying, I repent. Because I, I, I'm waiting for the Messiah to come and I want to be in a right relationship with God whenever he gets here. And then Paul says, once Jesus has come, which is the current situation, there is a need to be baptized under the authority of Jesus. And that will provide, it seems, a greater benefit. As we look throughout the New Testament, we see baptism is about the authority that is done in the name of Jesus. Now, a lot of times people connect the words and they get really upset about different words. Whenever we're in the baptistry, I've had multiple people say, you need to say in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Notice here, they're, they're baptized in the name of Jesus. Okay, So the wording may not be so important as it is to make sure the authority is right. One way or another. It's not by my authority we baptize, but it's by the authority of Jesus. But it's about the belief in the Messiah who has come and believing that there is a blessing that's being given. Let's look at a few of these verses. I've got quite a few verses for us to look at. But the first one's very interesting because it ties in the Holy Spirit idea to baptism. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 through 13 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one, one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Notice baptism is a joining together of people into one body where they drink of the one spirit, where they have the life, where they become the tree that is beside the water that has access to all the life-giving stream that they could possibly imagine. And it's a baptism that connects us to the spirit in that way. So it's different than John's because of that. Notice also in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Notice in this text, it, it makes it clear, baptism is not a work that we do, but it is a work that God does. Uh, not by works done by us, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is about belief primarily, 
obviously. The, the people who were baptized in John's baptism didn't believe yet in Jesus. And the people who were being baptized here now had believed in Jesus and needed to be baptized. But you see, the Holy Spirit is working. The power of God is working in that baptism. What is he doing? He's washing. He's regenerating. He's renewing. Look at Hebrews 10. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're not just getting wet, but our hearts are being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Our, conscience are, our consciences are being purified. In 1 Peter 3.21, similar idea. Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So these, these men, these disciples, needed to be rebaptized because they had not yet stated their faith and belief that Jesus is the Messiah and that he, through the Holy Spirit, cleanses our conscience and attaches the blood to our hearts whenever we go through the waters of baptism. Baptism is not just water. It's not just about repentance, but it's about the blessing that God wants to give to those who believe in Jesus. So, they didn't understand that, that essential part of baptism and the fact that the Holy Spirit was able to work to provide the cleansing and the removal of the sins. So they needed to be rebaptized. So I hope that helps in, in your curiosity of rebaptism and, and explains that to you in some ways. If you've got more questions about that, ask me. We'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. But in this, in this text, the main point, the main idea is these disciples were willing to relearn things. They were willing to look again at what scriptures say to try to make sense of things. If you're like me, a lot of times I like to just kind of check things off and forget them. Um, whenever I was in school, the day that I took my final exam, I never looked at those books again. I never looked at those notes again. I never even thought about those subjects again because I was just so happy to be done with that stuff. But if we're not careful, that's the way that we can approach scriptures as well. And what we see in this text is that these disciples were humble. They were willing to uh, re-approach the things that they thought they knew. And by doing that, they were not just, they hadn't just checked off the list. I've heard people say things like, well, I've read the Bible once. And I like the things it said about Jesus, but I don't think I can get along with that. Or I, I believe the things about Jesus, and, or I read through the Bible and I'm done. You know, I've read through the Bible. Like, oh, well, good job, but you didn't get it. I mean, there's a whole lot more to the Bible than the surface level. And so the Bible is not something we can read through and then check off and say, I got it. But it's something that we will spend a lifetime studying always trying to come to a greater understanding. Maybe some of you are the most eloquent and the most understanding and the most knowledgeable people. You're extremely intelligent. I promise you, you open up that Bible a second time and you will learn maybe five times more than you learned the first time. And you still won't have learned everything that there is to learn. And so as we study this text, we learn about Apollos and we learn about these 12 disciples. 
We see that there are trees by the water who are willing to learn and to accept God's word because they're, they're meditating on it day and night and they're, they're delighting in the word and they're listening to it. And that's what we need. That sense of humility and curiosity and, and openness to what the truth is that says, I haven't got it all figured out yet. There's still more to learn. And I have to be willing to question the things that we know are true because maybe I didn't read that right. Or maybe someone who taught me that didn't read that right and I need to study it for myself to make sure that these things are true. It's not that we live in a state of constant confusion or uh, that we, we constantly doubt our knowledge completely, but it's that we're willing to learn more. We're willing to start over at the baseline and, and learn it all again to see if the knowledge that we've accumulated in the last 20 years has, has affected our, our understanding of the truth to where we can maybe formulate the right understanding or at least draw closer to it. If we're righteous, we delight in the, in the Word of God and we meditate on it continually. We never get enough of all of these wonderful truths that God has shown to us. So, as we study this text, we learn a lot of things. We learn how to share the truth with others. Aquila and Priscilla uh, weren't proud in their knowledge. They just, they took, they took Apollos aside and they explained it to him. They didn't think, oh, he needs to be embarrassed in front of everybody else or I'll put him in his place. They were very patient and kind. Paul as well to the 12 disciples, explaining these things to them, uh, helping them understand the baptism that Jesus is, is, is offering, which connects them with the blessings of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then also, notice he laid hands on them to give them miraculous spiritual gifts, which was the thing he initially was asking them about. But he, he's willing to be patient with them and explain these things. And he wasn't proud. Because if we're proud in our knowledge and understanding, we won't have any love for others. We won't really love the truth. Pride is our enemy in all of this. So we must remove our pride and we must humble ourselves to, under, to understand more about the truth and to be a living tree. We need to understand that it's our mission, our goal in life, to, to hear the truth and to have an open mind to believe the truth. Have you ever had somebody critique you and it hurt your feelings and made you really upset? And maybe, maybe they were extremely gentle and kind towards you as they expressed that truth to you, or maybe they were just ugly and mean. <laughs> but either way, you knew deep down what he said was really the truth. Well, don't let those hurt feelings keep you from believing what's true. Because the truth is what we're after. It's what gives us life and vitality. When we're wrong, we need to admit we're wrong. And whenever we admit we're wrong, we start being right. We can't be right until we admit we're wrong. So if we're wrong, we're wrong. Admit it and get over it. And, and if you've lost, you know, 10 years believing something that was totally wrong, so what? Don't hold on to the 10 years of believing something that's wrong and live another 30 years believing something that's wrong. <laughs> Let go of what's wrong and cling to what's right. Cling to what's true. We have to love the truth more than we love ourselves and we love our reputation, then we love the, the respect and admiration of others. 
We have to love the truth more than any of those things. And it's beautiful how Apollos, after learning the truth, was still exalted. (laughs) The truth is, whenever we accept the truth and we change and we conform to what the truth really is, we don't lose status with people, we gain status with people. That actually helps us to have better relationships and more real relationships. It makes our life better in general, which is what God wants for us. So we have to be open to relearning as we see these men open to relearning. If you're here today and you've considered, you've considered what I've said and you've considered what we've learned about rebaptism, I want you to consider this and, and think deeply about this. Is rebaptism necessary for you today? As I'm going through this text. It's obvious to me the message is we need to be humble people who are willing to open up to truths that we had not previously believed. But I couldn't leave out the discussion about rebaptism because I, I'm sure that there are some of you who have either been rebaptized or who have considered being rebaptized. As you study through this text, I hope that your heart is open to whatever the truth is. If you have believed the truth about Jesus and believed that uh, in your baptism, he was providing you with the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing. And it wasn't just an outward showing of an inward faith. And you were saved before you were baptized, as the world around us teaches, which is not what the Bible teaches about baptism. And you now understand that baptism is the place in which we are renewed, we are regenerated. And you know that in your initial baptism, it wasn't, you didn't have the right belief. Or maybe you were baptized at that time and you didn't have a heart that fully submitted to God. You were just doing it because you felt pressure from your parents or you're doing it because you felt peer pressure from someone else. This happen, happens a lot. You see and understand that rebaptism may be necessary for you because the initial baptism was not truly putting your faith in God and submitting to him as these disciples are clearly doing throughout the book of Acts. And do you now believe in the authority, that, that the power that happens in baptism and the blessing that is being offered? And are you willing to submit to that today or, or sometime, anytime? I hope you'll think about these things if that's your situation. Maybe that you've been a disciple. Apollos was a disciple. Those 12 disciples seem to have already believed in Jesus, but you've been trying to do all the right things, and now you've come to this place in your journey where you're now understanding what baptism is. Submit. Your whole life should be about submitting to God's will. Submit and do the things that God wants you to do. Uh, Receive his grace. No matter who you are, you can have his grace offered to you free of charge. Receive it and be saved. Uh, If there's anybody here who needs to do that, please come forward as we stand and sing. If you need prayers or if you need encouragement, you're struggling in life, you've been uh, disloyal to the truth, and now you want to submit to the truth, and you ask for our prayers, please come as we stand and as we sing.